Welcome to Eurodollar University with Jeff Snyder. My name is Emil Kalinowski, and today we're going to be talking about the Chinese economy, the Chinese currency, the upcoming 20th meeting of the which party congress, the National Party Congress in October, and whether or not we are going to see a big change coming out of China regarding the way they're running their economy, maybe the currency. Is the tension building up? Is the National Party Congress in October going to be the, the signal once the president is installed for life, President Xi Jinping, will he have clearance to implement some radical policy changes? We'll see. We'll talk about it. But first, we're going to start off by talking about the most recent economic data out of China. Jeff, it's always the big three, but we're also going to talk about the loans and the currency the big three, retail sales, industrial production, and fixed asset investment. Ghastly, right? For the month of July? Double ghastly, Emil, right? Because not only are they extremely low, but they never rebounded. So the idea was that, okay, Xi Jinping, zero COVID, whatever reason, we don't really know what's going on there. Locked down a bunch of the economy. So mm. it was bad. So once the restrictions were lifted, the lockdowns were lifted. It was widely expected across. I mean, you saw shippers lining up. You saw um, economists, obviously, Western media saying China's economy is going to pop back up like a cork and everything would be really good. The Chinese would add some momentum, some badly needed momentum for the global economy to help it miss a recession. And that just never happened. So May was the first when first month when the uh, Chinese economy was sort of let loose, partially reopened, mostly reopened by the end of the month. And the numbers out of China were just Still contraction, still bad across the board. So then June, June was okay. June, we've got the full, this is a finally free. There's a, there's some minor restrictions maybe around, around the Chinese uh, countryside, but by and large, June was going to be the month. And there was a rebound in the Chinese economy. Some of the numbers went from negative to positive, but they were not all that high or not all that good. And then of course, just last week, we got the numbers for the month of July and suddenly they're moving back in the wrong direction. So the idea was, hey, if June was going to be reopening, maybe maybe it was just delayed. Maybe that, that real burst of activity would have would have come in July. And instead, July was a total disappointment. Not only did you know the numbers stay low, they actually went lower than they had been in June, which really the double bad part about this is that indicates that maybe, just maybe, June was the peak of the reopening rebound which uh, that does not paint the Chinese economy in a very good light because June was not very good to begin with. And if that's the best China's going to do for the rest of this year, that's sort of one of those uh-oh kind of situation. I was reading a piece by Michael Pettis at Global Source Partners, if anyone wants to read it as well. And uh, Michael Pettis, of course, is a professor of finance. He's lived in China for 20 years, multi-book author. And he wrote again, once again, the various recent data releases were pretty gruesome and mostly <laughs> confirm that the weak trends of the past several months have continued into July, just as you've said, Jeff. With the National Congress expected probably in late October, most of the economists I know in China are assuming that little will change in August and September. I too expect the next couple of months will be mostly more of the same. Jeff, as you're saying, July is not an aberration. The outlook for the coming months, awful. 
And that's that's really the issue here. Why? And I, I think that's that, that needs to be focused on investigated more. You know, the ask question is, what the hell's going on in China? And it's, of course, it's not just China, but, you know, specifically, this is not just a recent phenomenon either. This isn't just since the Shanghai lockdowns, which really hit, which really registered in, in April. It's been coming for more than a year. You could see China's initial recovery from the 2020 recession, the major COVID lockdowns, which for China started before they, they hit the rest of the world. Um, so China should be ahead of us in, in terms of where they are in the cycle. And, you know, 2020 wasn't all that great. And then 2021, which should have been an acceleration, actually the entire year in the Chinese economy was deceleration. And of course, that was blamed on the pandemic and any number of excuses when you could see the various ups and downs, you know, that coincided with uh, whichever variant and whichever program, or whichever politics. But by and large, there was a steady decline in the trend throughout the rest, throughout 2021 and into 2022, before we even got to the most recent months. Matthew C. Klein, a co-author with Michael Pettis in a book called Trade Wars Are Class Wars. He's also writing about China in the Financial Times. And I love this by the Financial Times. Whenever you print something out, they'll put the date of the article, unless you print it out the day after, and then they put yesterday. And they don't think about YouTubers, <laughs> YouTube hosts, who then can't tell you when this article was actually posted. Was yesterday. Sometime, <laughs> sure. Sometime in the last week. Thank you, Financial Times. Okay, well, the article heading is, Beijing is tanking the domestic economy and helping the world. Don't worry about that. I just, no. Here's the part that I wanted to bring to the audience. And you said that their economy started turning down last year. Does it have anything to do with the housing downturn? Quote, yeah. the downturn in the housing market began last summer in response to government restrictions on mortgage borrowing and developer leverage. We're going to talk about that financing in a moment. Just for people to understand the difference in housing, how the, uh, how the market's been affected. Home builders sold an average of 156 million square meters a month of residential floor space from April to June 2021. This year, in the same period, Chinese developers have sold just 106 million. The plunge in demand has flowed through to new building with the amount of residential floor space started in April, June 2022 down by nearly a half compared to last year. Can we blame it on a developing property bust? Or is it more than just that? Or is that a symptom of this bigger picture? It is that, and it is more than that. This goes back, you know, this is ties together Xi Jinping's central philosophy. And Xi Jinping's central philosophy is that China had a good run. You know, under Deng Xiaoping, the post-Mao era, special economic zones, this limited capitalism experiment that China went through, it was a necessary transformation to put China on the road to what they government has always been pushing for. The goal has always been, even during their experimentation with free markets, it has always been Marxist version of communism, which is eventually we're going to convert this sucker into actual socialism. We're going to try some kind of socialism at some point. This was never a move toward Western-style capitalism. It was simply a limited embrace of capitalism and free markets in order to make China into an industrialized superpower society. Because as Karl Marx said in the 19th century, 
any pre-industrial society that attempts a socialist revolution is doomed to fail. And that was certainly the case in China under Mao. And Deng and uh, his cronies said, Let, let's try a little bit of industrializing first before we get to the socialism. And since uh, Xi Jinping came to power in 2012, sort of a surprise there, because actually Li Keqiang was, I think most people were expecting him to take over as Hu Jintao's sort of protege, sort of signaled a shift in, uh, even from the very beginning, a shift in philosophy, which was essentially tied to the global economy. That the Chinese realized that the Globaliz the wave of globalization, the euro dollar wave of globalization that had allowed China to transform its society was ending. And it had started to end in 2008, 2009. But that second euro dollar crisis in 2011 and 2012 was the nail in the coffin. And it happened in, not just in, in the West, but also in the Chinese economy, where you see a dramatic slowdown in the second half of 2011 into 2012 that just so happened to lead up into Xi Jinping's promotion to the top spot. And so Xi's philosophy has been to transform Chinese society, realizing that the socialism with Chinese characteristics under Deng Xiaoping was no longer a viable option. And so for the last decade, Xi Jinping has been very clear that that's what they're going to do. They're going to slowly transform Chinese society to get it ready to go back to more of its communist socialist roots. And part of that has meant looking at the housing sector and looking at the housing sector very, very differently. Under the Deng Xiaoping model, housing wasn't just tolerated, it was encouraged because as you know, Keynesian economists say, aggregate demand is great, doesn't matter what form it is. And so housing was a key central part of the government's ability of the government's emphasis on growth. But you change the growth characteristics, the growth dynamics, Suddenly, you don't need housing as much anymore. And over the last several years, not just in 2021, but before that, the government in China had been preparing China to say, we're going to tolerate the housing market going. And we're not going to we're not going to boost the housing market. And we're going to focus on real estate as much as we had in the past. And whatever that means, we're going to allow that to happen because we're not prioritizing economic growth like we did before, because Xi's mandate is to reorient not just China's economy, but China's entire society more along the socialist principles. This topic about Chinese politics and the actual Chinese economic data that was recently released, you cover them both in two articles. One is called Manage Zero, and the other one is Hope for Zero. And those were from the week of August 12th and the week of August 15th, 19th, August 19th and August 12th. And they're both part of the Money and Macro Pro product that you have with Steve and Meter. Where can people go to sign up to see these articles, Jeff? Yeah, you can sign up at marketsinsiderpro.com free of charge. Just give us your email. It's free for now. Subscription, be turned into subscription-based service at some point in the near-term future. You get the uh, week, these deep dives, these articles, along with a daily briefing, which has, you know, as the name implies, a, a brief summary of the day's events and the day's data markets, as well as global economic data. We go over China you know, all the regular stuff that we talk about on the show, all put together along with Steve's Momentum Timer Pro and Tracy Shukart's, um, I think, well, I forget what it's called. It's basically focused on the oil and gas markets. That's a weekly research deep dive into those two. And in this one article here, the uh, Managed Zero, no, Hope for Zero, you talk about the change of heart by Lee, at least, how he was uh, 
died in the wool Keynesian <laughs> during the first go around, but then at least since the National Party Congress, the 19th one, right, in October 2017, his tone has been changed, forced him to be changed. And more recently here this last month, you're saying he's, he gave a speech and he quote, as long as employment is relatively sufficient, household income grows and prices are stable, slightly higher or lower growth rates are both acceptable. That's a big change. And Jeff, was he at the World Economic Forum where he gave that speech or is that a different yeah. speech? Because at, at that World Economic Forum, what did he say? Did he suggest that things were going to be looking peachy or did he, was he expecting a peachy boom or did he know there was no chance? Of I, you know, it's always, you, you never know with the top communist official, like any politician, it's not just communist, any politician anywhere, they, they kind of, they put on one face and you never know what they're actually thinking in private. And doubly so for Lee, because you, you wonder, as you said, Emil, he was a dyed in the wool Keynesian from the very beginning. I think he, uh, he got a doctorate from Beijing University, which is the same place as Michael Pettit is at, I think, or Michael Pettis is at, right? So, I mean, very Western style economist, very pro stimulus, talked about aggregate demand, sounded like Paul Krugman. Um, and then somewhere along the way, of course, we know when that was 2017, even as China's nominal number two, he had his portfolio stripped from him by Xi Jinping. Normally, the number two, the premier is given uh, the uh, the economics part of the portfolio, the government's communist portfolio, top-down central planning. Therefore, he would have been in charge of you know planning for the economy. That was taken away in 2017, of course, in the 19th Party Congress. And nowadays, Li is very much a doctrinaire, Xi Jinping adherent, enthusiast, whatever, whether or not he actually wants to be. I mean, given all the corruption charges that have been leveled against uh, leadership all of the last several years. I wouldn't be surprised if Lee is just acting out of a personal self-interest here, but I don't know that. I mean, maybe he's, he's, he's been, he's been shown the light and he's, he's committed to the Xi Jinping school of thought either way at the world economic forum. And not all that long ago, it was just several weeks ago. He said, China's okay. We're doing fine. We're going to tolerate a little bit lesser growth because we're, we're shooting for stability. We're not shooting for rapid growth and accumulation. As we said before, this is a different world for China. And he expected, you know, with, with Shanghai reopening, things were looking moderately better until they didn't. <laughs> so last we heard from Lee at the World Economic Forum, he was moderately optimistic. Not, you know, not, hey, China's doing really well, but we're struggling our way through here and things don't look too bad. Yeah, we're going to talk about loans to the economy, money to the economy, as well as the currency, Jeff. And we've got a graph up right now that shows Chinese real GDP as well as loans. And we can see how the most recent data is very, very low. And you would think that that's a good thing because they have a tremendous debt problem. And on the one hand, I suppose it is long term, assuming we can get to the long term. In the short term, as Michael Pettis writes, it's a concern, quote, Credit growth in July was weak. And while this is a good thing over the medium term, weak credit growth also reinforces the story of an economy struggling with demand. And he notes that more than 100% of the increase was explained by local government-related yeah. borrowing as both households and private businesses cut back on their borrowing. The growth in borrowing moderated, in other words, but healthy borrowing was actually down. So businesses, small to medium-sized enterprises, households, the thing that could sustain an economy long-term without building a th thousand bridges to nowhere, 
they're not, they don't see the demand in the future for their investments. So it's being forced to be done by fixed asset investments, state-owned enterprises that will just produce more goods for the world to consume and more fixed asset investments, more bridges, more libraries, more airports that are not needed. And I think that's really the issue here is that um, even now these local governments are struggling to hit their very, very much reduced modest targets. And even that is sort of masking the underlying defect here, which is, again, China's economy is not performing nearly as much, nearly as well as even it's the officials that are trying to, to, to transition the economy into a lower growth state. Even their expectations are not being met. So Li Kang, who said, you know, China, we, we're kind of muddling our way through here last month. This month, not, he doesn't have the same message. I haven't heard anything from him specifically, but very suddenly last week. Coincident with the release of this economic data that was, uh, what was the, the word that Michael Pettis used? Uh, gruesome? That's, that's, that's gruesome. Yeah, that's probably an accurate characterization, especially the loan data, which, I mean, in April, the loan data decelerated to the lowest it had been in 20 years, which was below 11% growth. I know 11% sounds terrific. I mean, it's something we could only dream of. But in China, that's the lowest in 20 years. As the economic data, it only rebounded a little bit in May and then June. And then it shrunk back below 11% in July, which is a considerably, a considerably low number consistent with the actual economy. So after the big three numbers were released last week, the PBOC cut some of its short-term rates, which was sort of a panicky move, which again, if the government's interest or the government's emphasis this year is on stability, regardless of upside to the economy, and they start panicking on rate cuts and other things that tells you that they're having they're having an inordinate amount of trouble even meeting their much reduced targets, their much reduced expectations, which, as Michael Pettis described, as uh, gruesome. I think that's really the word here is that, again, the China was supposed to rebound post-Shanghai. It was supposed to pop up like a court. Maybe it wasn't going to last for very long, but there was supposed to be a very clear reopening boost. A, re a lot of, of pent-up demand finally let loose. You would have seen it. And instead, we've seen the exact opposite from that. It never happened, which raises a whole lot of suspicions about what's going on, not just about what the government will tolerate. But what can the government actually achieve when trying to tolerate much less growth? If the audience thinks that that's the punchline, gruesome economic data in the past, no, we've got a surprise for you. That may be nothing if the Chinese currency becomes unmoored. And you're worried, Jeff, you wrote a couple of articles here that we've seen this story before, an artificial stability that's been taking place. So in one article titled China Induced Suspicion, then another one, four days later on August 16th, you wrote, you wrote I said, keep an eye on CNY. Jeff, you wrote that dating back to July 14th, the closing exchange rate has either been 6.74 or 6.75 in 17 out of those 22 days, including the day that you were writing, you're, and then you bring up treasury data, the tick data, Treasury International Capital Report, that corroborates a story that you believe means what? There's not enough money in China and it's being reflected in the currency. Tell the audience, and I'm, we're going to show the graphs of the, the Chinese currency against the US dollar. 
and tell the audience what happened after, after April 18th and where we are now, the artificial stability. Well, the story, again, is the euro dollar story, the money story. And if you're, you're concerned about China being a, a major economic risk, you're not going to offer dollars to the Chinese because why would you? You're not going to be compensated for the risks that you can't possibly quantify at this moment in time. Even after the disappointment into July, you're thinking, what does that look like the rest of this year? I mean, to lend dollars into China today, you're going to charge an exorbitant premium on those dollars. So, And Jeff, let me just interrupt. That's You're just speaking about the global economy and China's economic outlook, but we're in 2022. Cold War II is approaching. <laughs> There's saber rattling in Taiwan. More than ever, are we concerned about not just the Chinese economy, but the future relationship between China and, let's say, Team West. And those two reinforce each other, right? The weaker China mm -hmm. becomes, the more it tends to maybe lash out. First, internally. I mean, national security as stimulus is focused internally rather than externally at this point. But the, the worse it gets for China, economically speaking, the more dangerous it becomes everywhere else around the world. And yes, you're an investor trying to lend money into China, or wish, you previously wanted to lend money into China because you thought there was growth there. You are reassessing your investment thesis. You're looking for other places around the world that aren't so completely uncertain on every possible front, whether it's politics, economics, uh, financial, whatever. So the Chinese have seen dollar outflows, which is not really dollar outflows. It's less borrowing, less external borrowing finding its way into China. We've seen that in the tick data. We've seen it in the safe data, foreign exchange reserves that are falling precipitously in certain months. And of course, now we see it in the, is in the uh, Chinese yuan, the currency exchange. Sorry, Bretton Woods 3, Chinese yuan is falling again. And since then, over the last week or so, the Chinese yuan has actually fallen below that 675 level. And as of last check uh, at the close yesterday, today is Saturday, August 20th. So yesterday, August 19th, CNY was as low as 681.7, almost 682, which is the lowest it's been in almost two years. So things are moving rapidly in the wrong way, money, finance, economy, politics with regard to China. Russell Napier, who we've had on before, who spent a lot of time in Asia, recently noted that the portfolio flows into China have turned negative for the first time year on year, he says ever, but I'm sure, you know, as far back as the data goes back, quote, the value of Chinese portfolio assets, so stocks and bonds, not foreign direct investment into ownership of companies, plant, property, equipment. No. Uh, held by foreigners is no longer rising as now declined year on year for the first time in Chinese history. The tide of foreign investment in domestic currency denominated liquid portfolio assets is on the ebb. Is on the ebb, Jeff. Perhaps that explains why the why the currency is falling. But Jeff, you didn't address the artificial stability and how we've seen this before. Contingent liabilities, the PBOC, what are they doing? Trying to buy time, hoping things improve. If things don't improve, eventually the pressure valve has to be released. And we've seen that before in the Chinese currency, a dramatic drop, dramatic, not dramatic, but it Dis was yeah distressing, disorienting. It was pretty. I mean, and we just saw it on April eighteenth of this year, sort of artificial stability in the currency after the big blow up in the marketplace, global marketplace in March, and then all of a sudden on April eighteenth, boom, the Chinese yuan just sort of plummets. Which of course, 
you hear in the mainstream media about, oh, the Chinese are trying to boost their exports. Uh, that's it's devaluation, it's artificial stimulus, all this other nonsense. When it's really just a global dollar shortage smacking China in the face very hard to to an extent that the even contingent liabilities could no longer prop up the currency. And of course, that was sort of the implication I was getting at earlier this month when Chinese uh, CNY was sort of trading in a very suspiciously narrow range, which always raises you know the hairs on the back of your neck, thinking, okay, that's not a, that's not the world we live in, where um, any kind of dynamic, especially major currency like that, is going to ever go sideways for any length of time and in, in a suspiciously narrow range. So you're already thinking there's probably something going on behind that. Which, if things don't turn around and go go the right way, eventually, as you said, Emil, it becomes like a cold spring and it just pops. Now, whether we're seeing that happen again today. You know, the last week or so kind of seems to be the case with CNY falling precipitously again over the last couple days, which is indicative of the bigger picture, not just in China, but also globally, because as global investors, global dollar system becomes provoked by fears and uncertainty over China, that spills over to fears and uncertainty about everywhere else, because China is that important or it used to be that important to the rest of the global financial and economic system. Jeff, what do you think of this thesis by Russell Napier? And it's about a devaluation of the currency, not like we saw in 2015, August, where it's the euro dollar system pressure and you have to release based on your contingent liabilities and just to buy more time in the future, but a complete break along the lines of 1994. You mean like an actual devaluation, not sort of fluctuation? A 1990, yes. Yes, exactly. And the, the thesis is this. The thesis is that the property market is declining, and it has been for a period of time now, let's call it a year, that the private sector has a very high debt-to-service ratio right now, which is not welcome during this kind of moment when your property prices are declining. And so his thesis is that there is a growing distress in the residential property market and a waning appetite for credit, suggesting that China has reached a tipping point in its monetary policy and hence its commitment to a managed exchange rate regime. These are the ingredients for a debt deflation unless something is done. What is that thing? Well, that thing would be something dramatic, something that could be implemented after the after Xi's confirmation of absolute power in the 20th National Party Congress, and that would be a flexible exchange rate whereby you would be able to inflate away the debts internally. What do you think of that uh thesis? I think, you know, historically speaking, that's sort of one thing that governments have taught themselves that they should do or they can do. I don't think that's what the Chinese are actually looking for, because their message, their goal has been stability despite economy. So stability used to be the economy. Now they realize, hey, the economy is not going to generate stability anymore. They want to find some way of making a stable society despite the lack of economic growth. And I think that's really what's animating Xi Jinping's common prosperity and all these other slogans that they've come up with, several more that we're going to hear about, especially in the 20th Party Congress. So undertaking something like that, a radical transformation, I think that's really sort of a last resort kind of measure because the Chinese are saying manage decline. That's the slogan I came up with to describe what I think they're doing, which is 
again, stability without economic growth is going to be an enormous challenge for them. And so they're trying to manage this transition into a lack of economic growth, a more socialist type oriented society. If they have their way, which I don't think they will, then a full transformation into full-blown socialism at some point in time, certainly probably within uh, Xi Jinping's forecast lifespan. I don't want to make any predictions here, but essentially the idea is, I think that would be more of a last resort, hey, we have no other option type of measure, which I don't think the Chinese are in that awful of a situation, that precarious of a situation now or in the near-term future. That's not to under, or that's, that's not to underplay the uh, the the seriousness of the uh, the situation that they're in right now, but I don't think the leadership thinks that they have to do something so dramatic, you know, not not in, not not in the uh, near term future here. What if the portfolio inflows that have been heavy, and if I remember my data correctly, there's been more portfolio inflows than foreign direct investment from abroad coming into China, which is much more flighty. It's not investing in plant property or equipment, but things that you can sell and get out. What if that exodus accelerated it, Jeff? What would that do to the Chinese monetary system and order? Would real rates be rising? Would debt servicing be more difficult? And the reason I would think that this exodus would continue is because of the continued escalation, war of words, disentanglement of globally synchronized supply chains between Team West and China. If that accelerated portfolio flows try to escape, would that push the Chinese leadership into a devaluation? Not necessarily. I mean, I think you, that would look a lot like 2014 and 2015. I mean, if push mm -hmm. comes to shove, they start selling off reserve assets. They can characterize it as politics saying, screw you guys, we're selling all your assets. But it's really a contingency plan for the lack of financial and monetary inflows or the lack of sufficiency in short term rolling over and things like that. So I think that before they get to something more dramatic, uh, such as devaluation or other types of, hey, debt jubilee or something like that, hey, confiscating foreign foreign assets, any number of things that mm -hmm. they could possibly do, or foreign-owned assets in China saying, hey, you guys are now our enemy. We now own this factory. We don't need to pay you back in debt, or we don't even need to pay you in equity. I think there's a number of things that happen before you get to some of those more dramatic solutions that aren't really solutions. They're massive breaks and breakdowns in the way that the, the, the system operates. And I think the Chinese, before we get there, they will start to uh, sell off the reserve assets again. And the fact that they haven't up to now, again, to me is an acknowledgement that their focus is entirely about stability. They don't, really want, they don't even want people to get the, the uh, misperception that things are going wrong. And so that's why for the last couple of years, for example, their foreign reported levels of foreign reserves have gone nowhere. That's a engineered solution. It's the idea that we're projecting, whether it's real or not, we're projecting stability because we want the, we want the outwardly it, everything to seem like it's okay as China transitioned. So that they're going to put all their eggs into the stability basket until that's no longer a viable thing. And as we've seen around the world, Japan and elsewhere, you can pretend things are good and stable for a very, very long time, much longer than maybe we think is possible. So I think it's, it's quite a ways down the road before they get to more thinking about more dramatic possibilities. You're the voice of reason, Jeff, and, and moderation and not panicking. But Jeff, the, the stable foreign exchange reserves, to me, are a warning, yeah. trouble. You have record-breaking 
export surpluses, portfolio inflows for a long time, and yet your foreign exchange reserves are stable. Yes, I suppose the U.S. dollar's recent rise devalued the value of those other currency-denominated foreign exchange reserves. But in general, for years now, how long has it been years? Yes, for years, Jeff. It's just been stable sideways despite booming exports, despite portfolio yeah. flows. That suggests to me that there's money leaving. They're barely keeping the water level. They're, despite these record surpluses, money is rushing out of China, somehow leaking out. And yet that's that's what's causing the weakness in the CNY currency exchange rate, because it is not it's not stable. There is instability there. But, you know, China's developed a method to make everything appear to be stable and to keep everything moving and at least appearing to be somewhat of a less dramatic, I guess, is, you know, just what you said. It seems like it's a moderate decline when, in fact, there's probably more going on here. So. But still, even in that kind of situation, to my point, and I look, I have no idea. I don't I certainly don't. I'm not going to make any predictions here. But to my my view and my analysis, I think it can go along, go on for a lot longer than you'd think, especially given that it's been going on for more than half a decade already. And people still think China's doing really, really well. You still hear that a lot around, especially Western media, where hey, China's really strong and their economy is awesome and robust and the Chinese are in really good shape. So in one sense, the Chinese efforts have been successful, which is not that difficult, but to get Western media, compliant Western media on their side. But to your point, you know, where is where is that? Where does that point of no return? Where does that breakdown happen? What is how do we go from, OK, it's rickety, but possibly, you know, outwardly stable to it's no longer viable? And that's really kind of what you're saying is how do we figure out which one is which? Where does it go from, okay, it's a problem to holy shit, we got, we've got no other choice here. And that's, that's the real issue here is that it's very difficult to decide, especially given or very difficult to interpret, given how little we actually know about what's going on inside, down in the trenches, so to speak. Well, we'll be talking about it. We'll see it in the monetary measures, probably. And ironically, Jeff, for us on this show, it's the stability that's concerning. Yes. <laughs> a stable <No>. exchange rate, <laughs> a stable foreign exchange reserve holding, like dead stable. <laughs> that's distressing for such a gigantic economy. Yes. All right. Well, I'm looking forward to uh, following what's happening. But I like your point. It's probably right The uh, that this can go on longer than we expect, especially if you think about how long China has been running on non-economic activity since the mid 2000s 2005 let us say the real economic growth that's productive stopped and now we're 17 years later and they're still doing it it's incredible all right all right jeff great show i'll talk to you again next week okay emil take care 